0: episode 244 of Some Like It Scott. I'm your host Scott Harvey and I'm joined as always by my co-host Scott Sheldon. Today on the podcast our mission should we choose to accept it is to review Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. But first how are you Scott? Scott I'm so good. I feel like I come
1: I get I don't really think about this question ahead of time very much when you ask me like I always remember to ask you this question but for whatever reason on the other Episodes when you ask me that, and I'm just like, oh crap, like, what have I even been up to? I don't even know. Um, but Scott, uh, I feel like you caught me in the center of just a true cinematic feast of like a seven or eight day period. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that at if you want me to, but like, besides Dead Recon- i mean perhaps Dead not at I- length, but <laughs> yeah, Dead Reckoning part one aside, like, not even, not even counting seeing that movie twice before the weekend started, although I think we should include that, obviously, you know, getting. The joy, the pure cinematic joy on Saturday of getting to watch Interstellar followed by Tenet in an Alamo draft house in which I also consumed some very good golden barbecue wings and their special pulled pork barbecue chicken pizza, angry style. Scott, I know you can appreciate the angry style as well in that. Um, mm-hmm. I I was close to Nirvana on Saturdays, what I'll say and when Hans Went lit on the organ in Interstellar, like the theater was vibrating, and I was just—I was okay. On another, that's enough. You can stop. I was on another plane of existence now. on Saturday. Is what I'll say. Um, and then and then getting to see Tenet again, which granted I have seen that in theaters many times like this, I think this is my fifth time seeing that movie in a theater which we don't have to get into Scott's already laughing about that yes I've seen tenet five times in theaters
0: now and you've already seen it as sixth too is what is the interesting thing you don't even know that know that that's yet, true you, yeah yeah
1: I mean this is this is this is the end of a beautiful friendship for one of us Scott but it's uh, I'll see you in the beginning for another one of yeah, us. Though. yeah exactly um and I'll just say that the opera scene at the beginning of tenet is still just one of the elite openings in movie in movies period, because I think I had forgotten or or forgotten how just like it just starts. And like, they're just, they're just like, there is a terrorist scene at the, like it's like three seconds. And then there are terrorists at the opera house. Like it just drops you straight into it. And you know, elite stuff. It really reminded me that late stage Nolan, although the dark Knight and inception are two of my favorite uh, Nolan films. In fact, might be my one and two. I need to rethink my rankings probably after having seen Interstellar, especially in theaters. I think the truth is that his three most recent films in Interstellar, Dunkirk and Tenet are also in his top five for me. So I th- I think that all the early reviews around Oppenheimer being that it's one of his best is like it, that checks for me. Like I think he's on an underrated hot streak right now. I know people are a bit softer on Tenet and Dunkirk, I think, is probably underappreciated as as a movie overall. But um, yeah, Interstellar, we've glossed over this, but I I have turned on this. I think seeing it in a theater and maybe being a little bit older than I was before, which which worries me when I you know one day if I become a parent, how I'll actually feel right, watching yeah. this movie. Um, I I sort of was like, yeah, this movie's not a ten for me because I still feel myself like getting a little bit lost in some of like the love is the is the fourth dim- like you know love is this fourth dimension or whatever that brand is, is talking. Tough. sure sure I get but like look I'm here to say that like I get it. it it does I don't fully sync with that and so it's not maybe not a 10 but it's a five star from after seeing the theater this most recent time so on the third on the third time of asking I have I've given myself over to it and I was texting you after I saw this film Scott uh, and I told you that I was I was I wept three times in the movie um, and the person also added experience. Whenever you get the, a person next to you in a movie theater watching a movie that you've seen before, and it's a movie like Interstellar where there's like a lot of a lot of crazy stuff happening, and like you're getting like the the first time reactions, like when the when she sees the wave for the first time on um, I forget what the what the scientist names planet is. It's not Mann or edmonds, It's the other one, um, Miller Miller's planet. I think. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. You only see that wave for the first time once and yeah. it's like it is gasp inducing to say the least so you know i'm here to say that this i've always been a tars in case stan account and i stand by that i love those robots and it's it's pretty sick
0: yeah you're preaching to the choir here scott oh I'm, i know i'm letting want... this is
1: your i told you so moment like we three years ago scott the last time we watched this movie.
0: Well, i know. mean yeah i just mean in general the 2010s for Nolan are, you know, that is the decade for sure. me. It's not the 2000s. Um, I think, you know, I, I do put Interstellar and Dunkirk in my top three for his movies, and uh, sure. and The Dark Knight Rises makes the top five. So, um, I
1: Inception's I, 2010 I, too, so it also counts as as a 2010s Nolan film. But I don't know if sure. you were quite referencing that one.
0: Now, Inception is a little lower for me, but obviously a, a spectacular film in its own way. But um, all this to say, is is that yeah. like I got I got back
1: into the Nolan mindset on Saturday, and Clearly. brother, I was so locked in. I was so locked in on Saturday.
0: Yeah. Well, plenty more Nolan discourse, obviously, to come in the future, and there's been plenty in the past too. We did an entire series on all these yeah. films, but yeah, uh, it's interesting to see, I guess, how how things change as you see, see them in theaters. I was joking earlier because I still have not seen Interstellar in yeah. theaters, and I would kill for that opportunity. Um, yeah, It will happen someday. I just wish that day was sooner rather sure. than later.
1: Yeah, but between two times two with Dead Reckoning Part 1, Tenet and Interstellar on Saturday. Didn't even talk about seeing Double Indemnity in the theater last night at the Film Forum as part of this Billy Wilder retrospective. You know, a, a movie that I came across a couple of years, like actually, I think 2021, I watched for the first time and was like, this movie's amazing. Getting to see yeah. it last night in theaters was awesome. Getting to see another Billy Wilder movie in Sunset Boulevard next weekend, but you know, also the the Barbenheimer double feature as well. I, so you, you just caught me in the middle of this cinema feast sandwich. And uh, that's how I've been doing, Scott.
0: It's a good time to be a movie fan, for sure, Scott. Yeah. Uh, we we were we've kind of been looking forward to this stretch for um, a while now. Obviously, not just Barbenheimer, but um, the the Mission Impossible coming the week before it too. Um, it it feels like all of the other stuff we had to wade through, like you know, the last couple of months. Sure. Spider Verse not not included, obviously. <laughs> Spider Verse, innocent, um, yeah. You know, it, it was worth it to to get to this part, but. Why don't we just kick off our cinematic feast, Scott, by talking about our film today, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, the seventh entry in the Mission Impossible franchise. Christopher McQuarrie directs for the third straight film in the franchise, and yet again, Tom Cruise returns as Agent Ethan Hunt of the Impossible Mission Force. This time out, Ethan and his trusty sidekicks, Benji and Luther, played by Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames, Have been tasked with former by former IMF director Eugene Kittredge, played by Henry Charney, with retrieving the two parts of a key whose purpose is unknown to seemingly everyone. The cruciform uh... key,
1: Scott, please use its proper name. The cruciform (laughs) key.
0: The MacGuffin Key is what it should have been called. Uh, sure. Whatever it does, the key seems to have something to do with a, big, with a new big bad known as the Entity, an artificial intelligence that seems to be acting in a symbiotic relationship with the mysterious Gabriel, played by Esai Morales, a man from Ethan's past. Also on the trail of the key is a quick-witted thief named Grace, played by Haley Atwell, Glamorous Fence, Alana Mitsopoulos, played by Vanessa Kirby, Silent But Deadly Killer, Paris, played by Palm Clementif, and some regular agent dudes, played by Shay Wiggum and Greg Tarzan Davis. Yeah. As is tradition, the chase will take our cast of characters across the globe and into situations that, dare I say it, Scott, seem impossible to escape. Scott, does Dead Reckoning Part One continue to establish Mission Impossible as perhaps the finest franchise in movies today, or does Tom Cruise's quest to save cinema hit a speed bump and collapse under the weight of its own ambitions?
1: I think that this is another entry that cements Mission Impossible as the premier action franchise that we have today. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to wade into the territory of like greatest active franchise because I just like don't want to. I don't even wrap my head around what that means. But in terms of action franchises, this is it. Guys. Like this, this is it. I don't know what else to say. I had the pleasure of rewashing and introducing a friend of the pod, Jay Habib, to the Mission Impossible movies uh, over the last five months. We did one per month, basically leading into m- this, this new movie, Dead Reckoning Part One. And I- I'd also rewatched them relatively recently back in, I think, 2020 as well. And they're just like they're just so nice to rewatch. I'm just like they're just so easy to consume and rewatch. And I think what I found with Dead Reckoning part one is that even at the deranged 164 minute runtime that it has, it's like it's 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 a comedy. Like they, they made a two hour and 43 minute comedy. I mean, that's like the one thing that I feel like I took away from both watches, but especially my first watch. I'm like, I cannot believe that they that this movie is trying to be as funny as it is because I think that's one of the things it's not that the uh, there not like some cheese or some hu- like there isn't some other kind of humor in the other mission impossible movies. It is there. It is like a very, I feel like I, I associate that kind of like almost like rye humor of the films, like with Tom Cruise specifically, but like this film is like trying to cook jokes constantly and it's pretty funny for the most part. I don't, like not all of them land, but like, it's, pretty successful in that and i was surprised. like like one example is just like i mean i'm not as into this maybe as other people
0: but like tom cruise is just trying to do magic in the movie like i don't even know what he's doing
1: like what is, what is he doing
0: that's just like, how tom cruise flirts right like that's just how he introduces that's crazy because it's like true that. though probably like he probably has yeah, done that no, trick in real 100%. life yeah yeah look for context for what you're saying Right in the middle of the insane action set piece at the end of this movie, right where you are just on the edge of your seat, like cannot breathe, like you know, yeah. you, you know how it is. You've seen these movies. Yeah. They, we have this moment where they go through the dining car of the train, right? And there is bell peppers rolling around. There's a grease fire starting on the stove. There's sure. a hot air. It's uh, an episode a, of
1: of the Bear, yeah. It's an episode of the Bear, yeah. Deep
0: yeah. fryer, like yeah. spraying grease. oil yeah. everywhere, like. Yeah. It is camp. It is exactly where it's, it is like something out of a slapstick, you know, comedy that like all of a sudden in the middle of this like a slapstick coming scene, from like we the 30s.
1: Like from a yeah. from a from a century it, ago.
0: Exactly. Like the whole bit of them in the car in the tiny car that was and crazy. they're se- <laughs> handcuffed to each other trying to drive. I mean, that is like is a physical Charlie Chaplin, Jacques yeah. Tati, like, you know. Like I I feel like I'm not overstating it by saying that.
1: And and that really caught me off guard because that's not like that level, like the extent to which they take it in this film is like the thing that is different about this entry in the franchise versus other stuff. And I don't know if I personally like, like that direction versus them keeping with the same tone of fallout or rogue nation, but it's different. And I think that that's something that I found really interesting, especially as they're making ultimately what's probably going to shake out to be like a, you know, five and a half hour two part, you know, single film entry
0: extravaganza. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think that's, I think that was an interesting decision to take, but the truth is, is that like that sort of levity, I think creates a weird balance that works for the film because I think ultimately there's still a lot of action set pieces. I don't think they are quite as exciting as fallout or rogue nation. If you had to ask me personally, like the like specifically the action set pieces like there's nothing, in my opinion, as as ridiculous as the base jump off of the motorcycle is in this movie. I don't think it's as cool as the halo jump visually, like the actual experience of watching. Like it is it is the craziest thing he has done, but it is not as cool to watch, I
0: think, as the stuff he was doing in Fallout. Or the opera scene he did it the three regulation. times by the way we, we just have to say that it's the craziest thing he's done three times <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i i think part of it also i'll be honest is, and i was talking to to jay about this after we saw this film is that like it just doesn't like watch as crazy as like him halo jumping and getting struck by lightning like it just like the unfortunate truth yeah. is that it just doesn't look as insane as that but there's like more practical stuff happening on his base jump than on his halo jump if that may like the final product is like more pure, but like it doesn't necessarily read as
0: as psychotic. Like, it will never get old, though. Stuff. Just like the camera just whipping through the air with him, like we're just getting so many close up sure. shots of him, like and you know, so that there's no mistake whatsoever, right? It is him. Yeah. It is Tom Cruise, right? Yeah. Like it it never gets old.
1: No, it does. It doesn't, and it's it's kind of funny. I was li- I was listening to the Big Picture podcast, and they were t- they were talking about this, and it's like. It's really interesting that this whole film is like a little bit like a magic trick because, yes, Tom Cruise is like doing magic and like literal magic in the film. But the action set pieces themselves are sort of like fake outs, like they're not even really what the like. I think a lot of people actually would think that like, oh, like Mission Impossible is about the action set pieces. But this movie is just using them as like a sleight of hand trick to actually try to to try to bridge you from the emotional moment to the emotional moment, which this film is trying to achieve. And I thought that was an interesting perspective because I am someone who would say that the action is the juice in the Mission Impossible franchises for the most part. And most of the other movies are just, you know, you don't have to track the plot in the other movies. Just like watch just watch, just watch the movies, you know, feel it. Don't don't think about it if you want to go tenant on it. And I think that. Ironically, this film's plot is the most confusing because I think, you know, you want to get into the entity and the villains and whatnot, like. AI as a villain, I think, bridges you into a territory that is like hard. I think to narratively make really tight for a variety of reasons, which we can we can get into. But at the same time, it's like sort of the the, the breadcrumbs that he was leaving in Top Gun Maverick about like the the old guard getting run into be replaced with the new guard, and like we got to save cinema. Like he dialed in that even more in this movie with this notion of like. No one else can do it. Like no one else can be trusted to make the right decisions about our world, aka like the movie making business. And all these different, you know, governments, red companies want to control AI and like have control over over the industry, like over the world, aka the the movie industry.
0: People striking right now, partially, you know. Yeah, I mean, one of the absolutely one like of it.
1: the big reasons is AI, and I think that it's just really. Interest, like he is. This is the first story where I feel like there's like real emotional stakes in the film for like Tom Cruise, not Ethan Hunt, but like Tom Cruise has emotional stakes in the film. And the set pieces are sort of like obviously him pushing his craft, if you will, and trying to up his game, you know, a la John Wick, another premier action, probably the number two action franchise that exists currently to date, if you consider okay. that still active. Um, And I and I just think that it's fascinating that this film has it didn't take a step away from action, but I think it had a lot other stuff on its mind and it delivered a lot of jokes and a lot of comedy. Um, It made some it made some brave choices, I think Um, some brave choices that I want us to talk about things like why is Haley Atwell in this movie? Why? Spoilers. Why did we kill Ilsa? Why did we bring in a new woman? She'll be and back. Kill the old one. You think so? You think she? He thinks she's not dead.
0: I just expect that in movies nowadays. Like, okay, I, I I hope she's dead. Not because I don't love the character. I do love the character. I was very sad when that happened. Yeah, but uh, and I want there to be actual stakes in these movies. But I'm too jaded.
1: Even with Mission Impossible, interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, look, we'll see. We'll see if she comes back. I mean. Anyway, yeah, like, like, why, why did we kill an, uh, the old woman spy to introduce the new woman spy is my big question. Why couldn't we just have the old woman spy who everyone loved in Rebecca Ferguson? This town
0: ain't big enough for the both of us. Uh, I
1: mean, that's kind of how it felt <laughs> in the movie. Um, and it introduced new characters. Another thing, Scott, that I just want to throw out there is like, clearly, when Nicholas Holt was replaced in the casting of this movie, that character changed. There is no way that Nicholas Holt was cast to play that character in this movie. I thought Isai Morales was great, by the way. I thought he was like kind of a. I mean, the cha- yeah. the character is a bit of a a bit of a nothing, probably in the Grand Scheme thing. Like he's a he's a puppet. Like the character himself is a puppet. But I think the performance is is menacing and like sort of like mysterious and they in the right kind of ways. Um, and and Palm clementi as sort of like the heavy, for for Isai Morales as is Gabriel. Um, I think she's great. Like, I, that, this is one example. Scott, like, I'm really glad that she's not dead. And they make that pretty clear at the end of the movie that she's not yeah. dead because I think she's a really awesome character. And I think that they're she they didn't do very much with her, probably even less than what they did with Gabriel in the movie. But I hope that they see the reaction. I think that the reaction for her character has been really positive. And to the extent that they still have work to do, because I, I don't believe they're done yet. I hope that they saw that, you know, ahead of time. And they are seeing that right now. And they're able to work that character more in and give that character more room to breathe and develop. Cause I think that Palm Clemente is um, I think she's really, I think she's really wonderful in this movie. And apparently she's an absolute psycho like Tom Cruise. So that's cool too.
0: Yeah. uh, I don't think I knew quite all of those details. She's uh, apparently
1: like, like what is it? Like um, sky, sky dove, like Like a hundred times in the last three
0: years. Oh, okay. Psycho in that regard. I thought you were talking about the other stuff that makes Tom the real. I'm not talking. Why
1: would I even bring that up on the podcast? There's no need. Yeah, there's no
0: reason to. Um, No, no, no. I'm talking about like the the
1: person, like, Tom, clearly. I don't know why she played. I mean, I know why she played Mantis for a decade or whatever, but like, clearly she wants to do more thrilling stuff than that based on how she's spending her personal time.
0: Yeah, I mean, Scott, I don't know what more you want for movies than this. Um it, it is it is pretty much everything and and a bag of chips. Um you know, I, at the end of the day. Um I was just cackling, I was hooting and hollering. I watched the movie in 4DX, Scott. So, um that was You converted? Are you, you going to go watch all in movies in 4DX now? <laughs> definitely not. My butt was very sore after it. I had a fun time, uh sure. for sure. Um but uh, yeah, it, I could. I definitely couldn't. Um, couldn't do that for every movie. Couldn't probably couldn't do it um, for um, a three-hour movie, almost three-hour movie like this. Yeah, Again, all, your your that, your butt that is just wouldn't be the only thing hurting if you watched Oppenheimer in 40x, I think is is what is the yeah, joke we were making uh, after no one will make it out of that a lot but yeah i mean you can imagine that the car chase for example when the car is like going down the stairs right one at a time like you can imagine what that was doing to our seats and when Pom clematy drives through all of the motorcycles oh my God. yeah yeah what did it feel
1: um, like when there's the uh the, they're doing the donuts Just like the crazy donuts. Oh yeah! Again, exactly what
0: you'd imagine. (laughs) Um, It was unrelenting, but it was it was fun. It was fun at times for sure. Um, That was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. The thing is, though, it is so hot because the the, whatever they put in the seats is so like you know is warms up, and so I would have to like lean forward at times because when I put my back against it, it was just, it was too hot. Like they were cooking.
1: They were cooking with the 40. I was like
0: literally sweating, but it was cooking. Anyway, Scott, the movie absolutely delivers. Um, you know, he keeps finding ways to raise the bar. I mean, he, I'm saying Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise. Right. um, You know, it's like, where do you go from Fallout? Where do you go from Top Gun Maverick? They found new places to go to. And despite the runtime, I was never bored. The movie keeps moving. Yeah, Um, It feels so, you know, like, it's it feels like it's not even a... It's like a completely different sport from, for example, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, right? Like, it's just like, you feel like you're not even the same type of thing, even though you are.
1: It's so much more lively. There's just so much more... It's so much more energetic of a movie, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And it has, you know, you mentioned John Wick Chapter 4. It has this sort of Death Race 2000, it's a mad, 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 mad world type. We have all these weird people who are going toward, who are trying to find the same thing, trying to accomplish the same thing. And they're all like constantly Mm -hmm. coming into collision with each other all over the globe, all over these different locations. And I... Think that's really fun and entertaining, and I think it's a cool thing that suddenly these two movies have kind of leaned into that a little bit more. Um, I mean,
1: you're talking about Stairs, Scott, John McFarren, another another movie with some notable yeah, stairs, and it is what I'll say
0: for sure. Um, but it just, yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you some about it being a quote unquote comedy. Um, it is, but not it in, is a comedy. Not, it's
1: an action comedy, yeah,
0: not in the way that you know so many. Blockbusters nowadays try to be comedic, which I appreciate. Like, you know, you Simon Pegg has been in these movies for a while now. And you think, like, oh, he's gonna be the comic relief character. It's Simon Pegg. What you know, what else is he doing these movies? He always has kind of been. Sure, but Benji is a real character, right? Like we you know, he has this friendship with Ethan that is one of the key components of the like emotional through line that has been running through these movies. And this movie is definitely engages a lot with that, maybe more so than any other mission impossible movie. You talk about like, uh, you know, Ethan as a character, what, you know, the thing that people always are like, well, tell me a single trait of the character, Ethan Hunt, right? Like, you know, people who are trying to dunk on these movies will come out and put out those Twitter threads like that. Well, you know, they're kind of responding to that in a way. I think we're learning more about his past, or we're getting some some clues to his past, right? There's something that we're obviously going to find out more about in the second film uh, that has to do with with this Gabriel character and them and some other woman and uh, them yeah, meeting Marie. Marie, yeah, a long time ago. Um, so we're going to find out more about that. You know, we, we are going to find out more about the man Ethan Hunt, which. You know, I don't think it's I don't think it's a fault of the other movies, but it is probably fair to say we haven't learned a lot about who he is as a person in these past movies other than.
1: Well, the first movie is kind of who he is as a person, but, sure, uh, but sure. even before that, I guess, is the question. Like, yeah. Why
0: did he end up in the
1: IMF, which is essentially what the questions like what this all
0: what this is going to be answering. Yeah. But, you know, he's. Obviously, basically a superhero when it comes to the action stuff, and he cares very, very deeply about his friends more than anything. Like that's Ethan Hunt for you, and um, his and
1: his not friends. I mean, I think that's one of the one of the yeah, parts. I'll be honest. Yeah, sure. One of the things that I about this film that I think kind of bounced a little bit for me. Although I think I understand what it's trying to do from a meta perspective, but I don't know if it, like totally if I totally jive with it in the film. Is this whole notion that like how much he cares for grace Haley atwell's character like this whole notion of like he just met her and it doesn't matter if he knows her before like he's always gonna care about her life
0: and value her
1: life more than his and and i don't think that is like out of like out of sync with who he is like think about all the things that he's done to protect you know the earth and humanity like you talked about him being like a superhero right like he stopped he stopped like a nuclear bomb like two nuclear bombs in the last movie like I don't even remember all the stuff that he was doing, but like the syndicate, he was like, they were going to like kill all the different like secret agents or whatever. Like he's done stuff to protect people at great length of So it doesn't seem totally out of character, but it just feels like the directness of it just feels like a little bit incredulous from a meta perspective. I-, I get it. Cause like the film is about the industry and he's like, I want this industry to continue. And I care about your movie as long as there's like some authenticity to it. And like what you're bringing and I want to protect that. Like I think I get that from a meta perspective. I just think for me at at that level in the movie. It just leaves me sort of scratching my head. Um, And Scott I think the way that they meant. Like one other sort of related example is like when he's about to do the base jump. Off of the mountain. He's like thinking about. You know (laughs) all the women that he's thinking. Like he's thinking about Ilsa. He's thinking about. um, He has binders full of women. He's thinking about Marie he's this this mysterious woman he's thinking about elsa who's who's died and then he's not thinking about michelle monahan's character he's not Julian. thinking about ving rames he's not thinking about simon peck he's thinking about grace i'm like bro how many times can we fridge ethan in one movie like how many times can we do it it's like crazy to me
0: yeah i mean it is it is crazy and i agree with you like i said i was with a friend watching this movie and i said to them uh, you know, at the, there's a scene where Gabriel is basically like, you're going to have to choose between Ilsa yeah. and and uh, Grace. And he's like, if you do anything to either of them, blah, blah. you know, Tom gets the great moment to sell it. And I'm like, so he's is already such an easy decision." Bro. her on the same level as Ilsa, right? Like, who he has been so close with. Who like who he just had sex
1: with hours before, presumably. Like, whatever they were doing well, on the Venice. Well, I don't know about
0: I don't know ah. about that.
1: I think that is as, as explicit as you will ever get in a Mission Impossible movie that, that Ethan Hunt had sex with someone. Even more so than Michelle Monaghan.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, I think McQuarrie is very deliberately just sidestepping all of the romance. So oh, I, I think, I think that's he's
1: sidestepping I'd... it. But I, I think that it's like there's something. there. I don't know.
0: I think that's another thing that's just funny about it is that there's sure. all these women that he has such a close relationship with. But there's never really even the hint of anything romantic. I mean. Also, like, no, there's up, something romantic um, a, there little, a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit at one point, but you never even see them smooch or anything, like, it's nothing like that. Um, do you ever but, see him and and was it uh Jennifer Connolly's
1: character? Do they kiss in Top Gun Maverick? I mean, there's clearly something romantic yeah, going on there, do they?
0: Yeah, I think so. Okay,
1: you're probably but they're
0: right. in bed together, like, you know, we see that much at least, but that doesn't mean they um, do <laughs> Sure, whatever. sure, but, awkward uh, as it is, they are inventing it. We're not here to see that anyway. Tom, we're, we're, no one wants to see Tom Cruise try to, you know, attract women. That That's just not something well, that he it's can imagine, though. I mean, <laughs> on, on screen, at least he cannot act and do that. But, um, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, I, I am with you there that I was like, this feels a little like fast that he already feels this way about the grace. Thing, but Tom sells it. Tom just always sells it. And and talking about that, Scott, just mm-hmm. transition. You mm-hmm. know, what more can we say about the man himself? Um, you know, I feel like everything has been said, but I will just ask you sure. to say a little bit more. I guess at this point,
1: I kind of feel the same way as you. Like, I don't really know what else to say. I mean, frankly, I guess we haven't really talked that much about Tom Cruise on this podcast. Like in his movies, like we saw Fallout, and we saw. Top Gun Maverick, obviously we talked about both those movies on the podcast, but it feels like we it feels like you and I talk about him a lot off of off mic. So I don't feel like we've necessarily like <laughs> spilled all we have on air. But the guy, I mean, like what he there's just no one doing it like him. There just isn't. Like even Keanu in John Wick is like not doing what Tom Cruise is doing in the Mission Impossible movies. And that's not shade like the friend, they're just doing different things. Like the choreography is like what Keanu is doing in John Wick. And Tom is just doing like insane stunts in Mission Impossible. I mean, the ba- I've already talked a little bit about it. the base jump stuff. I think that's crazy. The Uncharted 2. I'm sure there's another reference point for the train stuff at the end of the movie. Like that stuff is crazy. Like I'm sure there's tons of CG effects in that, I know. But like the physical exertion of what it looks like they're doing, like him, Haley Atwell and Tom clementine at the end of of the train climbing the train like that looks nuts like, how do you, like that looks like a crazy thing to be doing um and i and i know that there's a lot of generated stuff in that but there, i think he's still doing the physical exertion of climbing so i don't know like it just seems like there's just no one else as interesting. there's no one else running like tom there's no one else running through an abu dhabi airport like tom there's no one running through venice like tom and i'm just i just like in the anticipation of like there's no one else doing a submersible excavation scene. Sorry, Indiana Jones. Like Tom is going to be doing it in Dead Reckoning Part 2. My only disappointment uh, about that, and I know I'm getting a little off topic here, is that like if they don't get Jim Cameron up in there to like tell them how to shoot an underwater scene, like I'm worried. I'm worried about the underwater stunt. Like I know Tom's going to like hold his breath for 15 minutes or whatever. Like he's going to break whatever the record is that, who was it? that set, Kate Winslet said on the avatar, like the oh, longest yeah. underwater breath hold or whatever mm-hmm. in a movie. I'm sure that Tom is going to break that whatever, whatever, whatever. But I just, I just want it to look as good as avatar does anyway. I just, yeah, I just think that the sort of like commitment to stunting is just something that Tom has seemed to commit his, the, the twilight in quotation marks of his career To like doing and it's like crazy that like oh now that I'm 60 or 55 or however old he is like now I'm going to start doing the craziest stuff of my career not when I'm like 35 or 40 when I'm when I'm 60 and it's just kind of nuts that he just keeps doing it and you know I I know once upon a time he said that Dead Reckoning Part 2 was going to be the the last like his like the Ethan Hunt send off or whatever I don't believe him. I don't. I don't believe it. I think he he loves doing this stuff yeah. too much.
0: We love watching him too much.
1: I mean, that's the, the thing. The cook. I, I, I know. I know that this film is like slightly underperforming expectations. Whatever. Like, it's a little bit complicated because it had a five day opening weekend versus a three day opening weekend. It underperformed followed on the three day, but it overperformed it on the five day. And, you know, you can argue back and forth or what's the right comp, but if people who go see this movie. Like, are I just feel like everyone watching this movie is like that's it. Like this is this is what I came for. It's Like Tom is what I came for, and he, there's there's no one like to, to circle back to what I said at the beginning. There's just no one like him. Like he's not like no one else is doing the stuff that Tom Cruise is doing making movies.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it's true. And and look, we just again we talked about Indiana Jones. Like we talked about Harrison Ford doing it when he was 80 years old why not Tom? You know, why why not Tom? Just, sure. just keep going. Uh, and I feel like he will. I just, I just think he, he, he doesn't have it in him.
1: I don't, I don't think that he, Tom. like, I don't, obviously, obviously we do not know Tom Cruise, but I just like, what is his idea of like off time? I, the guy is probably never off. Like he is probably constantly like, if he's not shooting the film or like talking to film and like trying to get his films like produced like if he's not on the phone with IMAX yelling at them about IMAX theater displays in like August like what's he doing he's like he's literally he's probably just dreaming up the next stunt like there's just nothing else i just like, can't picture him doing i can't picture him sitting down and like reading a book like i just like i can barely picture him going I mean, yeah, to the movie this theater is, and watching another is, movie
0: at this you know maybe it wasn't always like this but this is clearly like what gives him meaning in life at this point it yeah. seems like without this i don't know what he would do with himself. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't have much to add as far as him in this movie. It's, you know, it's classic Tom Cruise. He, he just, he always delivers. Um, Scott, these movies have become a lot about the ensemble though, as as the the deeper we've gotten into the franchise. So I want to know who stood out to you. I mean, we've said a lot of names of people, Mm -hmm. you know, heroes, villains, whatever you've talked about some people you liked. You know, who, who did you particularly think was a standout here?
1: I do think that the ensemble nature is big. And I, and I think that Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg are like still the number twos and threes in the movie in terms of screen time. Although Ving Rhames completely disappears in the final act of this movie, which I thought was I mean, narratively, I understood why he left the scene, but I didn't really understand why why they had him do that. I don't know why he had to be absent in the final act of the movie. But I think one thing that's interesting that isn't always true about other Mission Impossible movies that set this different is that I really think the new players in the film. So Haley Atwell, Isai Morales, and Palm Clementif, namely. But I think this also applies to Shea Wiggum and Greg Tarzan Davis. I think that the newcomers to the film actually did a better job of really standing out in the in the film. And I think that's because they were given a little bit more screen time. Part of that is probably just the additional runtime of the movie. But even that, like, you know, in the final act after the, you know, like while the base jump is happening, like Tom is not really in the movie for a period of time. Like he's like kind of sidelined while he's trying to get onto the train. And that gave the film a lot of room to breathe. And the beneficiary of that is Haley Atwell and Vanessa Kirby. Who are sort of like playing. It's always confusing because it's like Vanessa Kirby playing Grace playing the White Widow. <laughs> like it's it's like very complicated stuff when they're doing the masks, like great mask work. But I do think that Haley Atwell, you know, Vanessa Kirby in that last act, Esai Morales in his sporadic ap- appearances and then Palm Clemente even like her. T- I say like her two big sequences, I think, you know, two or three. I think that they really stand out. I think that I mentioned and talked about Isai Morales already. I think he's a very good menacing sort of like older, like clearly of the same age ish as Ethan, like wizened, like clearly this, this sort of very mysterious figure you want to learn more about. And he plays that really well. I like him in that role. Palm Clemente is the heavy. I talked about that. Like I found her sort of like psycho spy, fi heavy girl. In Paris, who like, you know, only speaks a few lines, but has this sort of air about her and the way that she carries herself and and sort of delivers the few, and the way that she delivers those few lines that she does deliver, I think it really works well. Also, the, the the sort of Renaissance, like the her serve in Venice with like the Renaissance like jacket with the with the grandiose buttons and like the white, almost like clown like makeup, like what a look. I mean honestly, just like what an absolute serve that was. Um, but yeah, and then Haley Atwell, who I think is like the person you, you really have to talk about when you talk about this movie. If there's one person who stood out, I think it probably would be her. I, I the grace character confounds me a little bit as I've, as we've sort of already talked about. But I think the performance, like, if you told me that Tom Cruise is retiring from Mission Impossible after dead reckoning part two, like Haley Atwell was, was volunteering to serve. I think as, as the future of the franchise in this movie, I think she sort of so- showed that she had the physicality to do it. And clearly they believe in her
0: because Rebecca Ferguson is right there.
1: They could have, they could have just had her do all those things. I'll swear at, to you guys. Like they could have just had her the there doing end- those things.
0: What happens at the ending of this movie, you know, very strongly suggests
1: that yeah.
0: she is going to be the, 100%. the one to take over the mantle. Yeah.
1: And we'll see how that plays out. She accepts out. the mission.
0: Yeah. Spoiler. alert. Exactly. Like
1: she, unlike unlike Ilsa, you know, she was offered a choice and she chose to accept as the lingo would go in the film. And I and I think that I get it. Like I think the performance is there. I think she I think she has real star power. I think she has real chemistry with Cruz in the film. I'm not sold on like why the character exists to me, Leah. Like I I I stand by all those things that we talked about earlier and I bounce on that a little bit. But the performance itself, I think, holds up pretty strong. And I'm very interested to see if they do maneuver her to be, you know, at the end of Dead Reckoning Part 2 to still be in the picture and potentially lead the franchise if, you know, Tom is going to step back and Ethan Hunt is going to be, you know, quote-unquote retired as a character. But, yeah, I, I think the performance is really stellar. I mean, I think that's the thing. Like, in many ways, I think the performances are even more notable across the board in this movie than in previous ones, like, you know, Sean Harris, I think, is a is a is a pretty good villain in the previous two films. But I don't know if he's memorable as a villain. You know, I, I don't know that he really stands out in is. the cast. Yeah. I think maybe because of his voice, he is Yeah. But like, I'll be honest, like when I revisited Rogue Nation or when I was sorry, when I watched Fallout for the first time, I even realized it was the same person. Like, it took me a while to, like, actually connect that, like, the villain was the same person. And, and like, eventually the movie makes it, like, abundantly clear that it is. But, like. I didn't revisit rogue nation right before watching fallout back in 2018. And like, I didn't immediately connect that. I think he, again, I, I don't necessarily swear by that, but like, I think that some of the performances are really strong in this movie. And I think that they might actually surpass the like ensemble. Ness of the, of of previous entries.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm with you for the most part. I liked Haley Atwell in the movie. Um, I think she will be a solid addition going forward. I don't think we should pit the female characters against each other, of course uh, with that being said i'm I'm definitely team ilsa um I wish that ilsa but had the been but the, the movie kind of does do that like the movie does that no for it you. it abs- it absolutely yeah. does, and you can see it headed towards this direction because Ilsa feels like she is pushed to the background um once once you know grace shows up like she Grace is in the role doing the things that you would expect that Ilsa would be doing. Um, Sure. But they are very different, right? Like she is more of the quick witted, you know, thief. Like she, she, she matches Ethan. She's not a spy. Wits. Yeah. Whereas Ilsa, I think is the more physically commanding presence.
1: Um, Much more ruthless and cold blooded.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I would have been very happy to see the mantle passed on to her eventually. I have infinite faith in this franchise, so I think Haley Atwell will be able to do it justice, but I, d- I don't know that I would go as far to say that she was the standout for me. Um, of,
1: the new, of the new cast, I think she was.
0: Maybe. I got to say, I love Shea Wiggum in this movie. Yeah, uh, we do got to talk about Shay Wiggum. Classic character actor performance of just like the normal dude amongst all of these crazy people. Um, and... <laughs> yeah. Like you the know, shot of just, him and, just... and
1: Greg Tarzan Davis in the airport with Tom Cruise running in the skylight above is yes. just like it's so funny.
0: I was very upset that people were not applauding in my theater anytime that Tom ran, but um, yeah, just like his exasperation and like you know, just pissed off at you know, the fact that Ethan and everyone else is kind of like one step ahead of him seemingly at all times. Yeah. It reminded me like of like. I don't know, like Garrett Dillahunt in uh, Ambulance sure. last sure. year as like the yeah. cop, you know, in the USC hat or whatever, like it, that yeah. sort of type of journeyman like, you know, supporting role. I thought he was perfect. And and when he shows up at the end, it's like Hunt, like it was <laughs> almost as good as when yeah. when Baldwin Alec Baldwin. Says, I Rogue Nation. Yeah, I can't um, wait
1: for Dead Rock Part Two when- and. Shay Wiggum is saying that Tom, that Ethan Hunt is the manifestation of or
0: <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, for there are probably many reasons why Alec Baldwin cannot be back in these movies. If, well, if Shay Wiggum is but... going to be the replacer, sure. but did he die?
1: Yeah, yeah, bro, he was stabbed to death in the series. That's far. true.
0: He did. Yeah, he was. He yeah, was. Henry Cavill knifed uh, him in the sewer. I mean, nothing matters anymore. But um, anyway, Shay Wiggum is... in this franchise, that. who
1: who that is not that has not happened in this franchise, Scott.
0: Yeah, well, there's always the first time for everything, but um sure, sure. I'm just cynical. Just ignore me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think everyone in the the supporting cast is really good. We've talked about a lot of them at length thus far.
1: Do we need to carve Actually, out two? Do we need to carve out two minutes for you, like you did with Spider Verse, to complain about part one versus in part two? Because I just feel like you got to well, get equal treatment
0: here. <laughs> I mean, sure. But I will say this movie, I think, does a better job of telling a complete story, I think, in its part one, and like leaving you feeling satisfied at sure. the end of the movie. And not that I wasn't satisfied at the end of Spider-Verse. Obviously, I was. But it, mm-hmm. it, it, there is a, like, it just breaks off in media race, right? Like, right when we're ramping up. Whereas this, there the action does come to some sort of a, Conclusion: Getting in, the band together train.
1: and getting the cruciform key, not the same.
0: I don't know. Uh, I I don't think it's quite the same, but um, I I, I hear you on. I'm that. just I'm um, just messing with you. I mean, it, yeah, it, you know, it's it, it is fair, but uh, it just didn't bother me as much in this movie.
1: I gotta so say, I, Scott, sorry before one. I know you're about to talk about it, actually There's another yeah. thing: cruciform key up there with rabbit's foot for me. Terms of great things that I just want to yell. I just want to yell about. Be like, get me the rabbit's foot. Get me the.
0: That's what I was going to say. Is I almost think that plays into the comedy of the movie you're talking about too. Is like, sure, the fact that everyone is trying to get this key and like basically nobody knows what it even is. It's it's like they are winking at you about the rabbit's foot thing and that you know everyone says it's the ultimate mcguffin or whatever yeah, yeah, they're yeah. like oh you know what watch this like we yeah. can make one that's even more literally MacGuffin. the
1: entire world is trying to get this thing and they have no idea what it
0: does <laughs> and it's a flex right because you don't care right like that they are literally like we're gonna make a movie where everyone is trying to get this thing nobody knows what it is but you're going to be on the edge of your seat the entire time. You don't even understand what the stakes are, really. But you're going. I, be I do think to
1: you line. as a viewer probably understand the stakes a little bit better because you have the opening sequence, which is maybe where you're going to next in terms of set pieces yeah. and stuff. But. Yeah, I mean, the, the agents in the film certainly don't have a clue what's going on, the stakes. Mm hmm.
0: As far as the set pieces, Scott, you know, you're mentioning it there. There's the opening with the Sebastopol submarine. Yeah. There is the airport sequence. Sure. Um, there's the long car chase that we've talked about that happens.
1: Pure comedy. Um,
0: and then there's just kind of, you know, there, there's the sort of chase through Venice where Palm Clementif and uh, Ethan have this fight in an alley that's pretty memorable. And then we have the final you know, extravaganza mm-hmm. talk about what you liked. I mean, I think they're all pretty brilliant in their own way, but um, what do you want to say about these?
1: Yeah. I, I thought that, you know, I really, I guess I'll, I'll rewind. I'll back up for a second and say, I really like the opening sequence. It is so different than I think a lot of, maybe I'm just being wrong here, but like the sort of like spy thriller element is something that I don't think that we actually get that much in mission impossible movies like the it reminded me a lot of Mission Impossible one like much more De Palma esque. I know that they're not there's no scenes on a submarine in that movie but this notion of like there is this secret like ultra spy submarine floating around the Arctic trying to test like new stealth capabilities feels so much more like Cold War esque noir spy type mold than anything like the closest thing might be when they're like invading the kremlin and ghost protocol like that might be like the next thing that comes to mind in terms of like sort of real heavy duty spy work that that's going on and i really liked getting an injection of that because i think it spiced up those other more sort of almost um you know hyperbolic set pieces the more like traditional what you might think is like traditional action set pieces Happening later on. I think Abu Dhabi is like sort of a good sort of mix of like, there's nothing like truly crazy action wise going on, but it's starting, it really introduces you to the flavor of the film. Like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be a funny movie. Or like, you get to meet Haley Atwell, you're, you're doing the magic trick, you're like having them avoid all these different secret agents. And the amount of sort of, Editing and cutting required to do that, but never feeling lost in the airport. I thought was something that was really impressive about managing a pretty hectic scene and overall delivered a pretty seamless experience. The car chase going to that, like in in Rome, I like it. It's a good thing that the film was a comedy because if they just had that car chase scene and did not add different flavors to it with like the handcuffs and the sort of the real comedic elements of that scene. Like I think that would have gotten old a really fast because it's a pretty long scene, but B because they do that not once, but twice in fallout, they have two long car chases in fallout. And they have one in rogue nation too, if I remember correctly, like they have a lot of car chases um, in the recent movies. And the fact that they took a very different tack with this one to make it very comedic, I think was a good choice. It wasn't my favorite set piece, but it had some of the funniest bits in it for sure. And then Venice, I think Venice is sort of, it's kind of the letdown, I think in terms of a set piece, obviously it has like the emotional climax of Ilsa dying, but I think just like all these sort of alleyways are like not great. I like the the face off that he has with Paris in the alleyway. And that's a pretty, I think that's a very, that almost felt more like a John Wick type scene almost cause because of how brutal like the there's like the cru- like the metal pipe that she's like using to like in the in the fight and he's getting like tackled up against these like narrow alleyway walls and I, that was like a that was like a more great physical... moment in
0: 4DX again as you can oh, I'm imagine sure. yeah. when he's like
1: banging the metal pipe right yeah. over her head or whatever Um yeah like I I didn't love sort of the build up to like the, the climactic parts but the climactic parts I thought were really effective in that scene And then, yeah, the extravaganza at the end, I got to say, like, even though it's pure camp and I and I'm I'm so willing to wave away so many conveniences, even like I just sort of was like rolling my eyes and like not in like, a oh, that's really funny kind of way when he like busts into the train at exactly the right moment, hitting the exact right person off it, of this base jump. It was the funniest
0: m- moment in the movie. Like it, it, the whole, my whole crowd like burst out laughing. It, it had, I mean, it's intentional. It obviously, is.
1: it obviously is intentional because they, they know they're not stupid. They know what they're doing. They know it's, it is absurd. And I get that. But I, like, I, I didn't totally, I didn't totally connect with that. And I found myself just like, okay. Like couldn't be me. Well, Yeah, sure. But like, I just think that obviously there's tons of ridiculous things that happen in all of these movies and incredible conveniences do occur. But one thing that's different about this film, and I think a lot of the set pieces that we're talking about is that is that things feel like there are things that feel truly impossible happening in this movie. And and frankly, like, I don't think that's happened before in Mission Impossible. Like, some things feel outlandish and absurd, but like, you know, everything feels within the realm of possibility. Landing in that train car doesn't feel in the realm of possibility, I think for me. That is a me problem. I understand that I'm probably in the minority on that. I hear where you're coming from, and I and I and I do get that finding that to be like. I don't think him hanging on
0: the side of that plane at the beginning of whichever movie that is, uh, Rogue Nation, right? Like, is that within the realm of possibility?
1: (laughs) Probably not. But here's what I'll say is like it felt more plausible. Um that's not based on anything. That's just a feeling. I understand this is just a feeling. Is it? Is is it within the realm of possibility what they do with the helicopters at the end of Fallout? Like probably not. No. Like, no. Probably not. <laughs> of course not. But it it was just a feeling that I got, and I think it was because okay. a lot of things earlier in the film, which we haven't really talked about too much, also felt like, wow, I'm not sure about that. And I think a lot of that has to do with the. AI. We have not talked about the entity at all yet. Like somehow, like we haven't really talked
0: about about that. Like. That was one of the last thing I wanted to touch on.
1: Yeah. Sure. So maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I think one of the I reasons agree. why I was I was less um, open to this notion of like he's going to base jump off a mountain with a motorbike and then parachute and get it just perfectly. Um, I think I think some of my hesitation around like giving myself over to that is a little bit to do with the entity as like a plot device in general. Um, but we can get to that in a second. But overall, like like you said at the beginning, I think, th- I think the biggest thing you can say about the set pieces is that it's an 163 or 4 minutes or whatever. And, like, I never looked at my watch. I wasn't bored. I was engaged the whole time. Like, everything held my attention. The set pieces are all a little bit different. The things that seem very familiar are spiced up with that flavor of comedy that I was talking about. And the performance is sort of it. Obviously Tom is at the lead of that, but even other people like Shea Wiggum is, is one of them. Isai Morales is another, like all the sort of bit parts, right. Are coming together and, and, and selling the the set pieces. And I think that um, it's a real, it's a real credit.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I gotta say, I like the, the car chase. I mean, you, you're, you're, I mean, you did. No, you I'm like saying I liked it too yeah.
1: because of the comedy, I liked it, but it would have right. felt the same as Paris as whatever, whatever, whatever. And,
0: in, yeah, that was going to be my comment too. Is I feel like I've seen every version of a car chase there is to see in this franchise and just in general. Um, so I would yeah. not have necessarily been enthused about another one, but they found a way to make it fun. Um,
1: they knew sure. they had to do something different.
0: And they yeah, yeah, and that—that's the thing. Like that's why these movies are still so good after seven times. Is they know when they need to do something different and they yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, I really liked the airport scene as well. That reminded me more of like a you know the opera house or something from Rogue Nation. More of like a suspense style, um, sure. Wh- where where the the tension in the scene is based more on like the suspense than it is on action per se, because you you have a bunch of different people in different locations like converging on this one place. But then also you have Benji like trying to defuse what he believes to be a nuclear bomb in the luggage yeah. you know yeah. place. Um. Yeah, it, it's it's all very fun. Uh, mm-hmm. What's going on there? I loved all the moving parts, and Macquarie, as usual, is so good at you know keeping everything in in balance and making sure that the audience understands where everyone is, what everyone's trying to do. You know. Yep, I agree. I happening. think I think
1: that scene is the real is the real credit to Macquarie. I mean, obviously, he's overseen a lot of really spectacular set pieces, and I don't want to take any away. Th- away anything from those. But I think the sort of master craftsman is in the scenes like the airport where there's like everyone is just all over the place and it could be really confusing. I think it's easy to get like lost in that and I think that he's able sort of how we used to compliment the Russo brothers in like the Avengers movies like these huge like the scale of the set pieces are so large that it's really it could be really easy to lose track of of what you're following. But you know the the craft comes in in making it really digestible.
0: Yeah, um, I I agree. I think it's one of the things that Macquarie really has brought to this franchise, and you know three movies on. But so last thing, Scott, the AI. Obviously, it's you know the entity. It's a big conversation topic right now. Sure, it's a big conversation topic. You know, in relation to this movie, but also just in general with what's going on in the industry and in the world in general. Um, and many people saying it is very similar to the plot of a peacock original show
1: from Damon Lindelof called Mrs. Davis. please watch log yeah, on.
0: many people are saying that. Um, I saw
1: three people <laughs> on Twitter talking about it. That's many people yeah, in that's my book. about right. That's um, many people in my book.
0: Scott, how do you feel that the movie handled this big timely topic? I mean, you know again, this wouldn't necessarily be the movie that you would think, oh here here we go. this is gonna be the great the movie to to take on AI with you know, subtlety and nuance. Um, I don't know yeah. that you would think of. Not quite of sure it takes it on with Part subtlety
1: and nuance, that. but yeah.
0: But did you think it handled it in a, I suppose, tasteful and relevant way?
1: Yeah, so so fascinating that that a movie like this is able to predict the zeitgeist, right? Because this film is written and and shot in 2020, and early 2021. Frankly, like before AI had become a really big you know, as big a talking point as it is, you know, in the last six to nine months here in the culture. So it's it's sort of uh, amazingly predictive um, and and very, very prescient uh, for the film to come out now when, you know, every other week there is, you know, some new development AI, the writer strike and the actors strike the SAG after strike, which you alluded to earlier is happening right now. And one of the key friction points is the use of AI in the film industry moving forward. And I think that, you know, I don't know how much Tom and, and Macquarie at all are, were thinking about that, that kind of future um, and how much of it is serendipitous that it has sort of exploded in relevance. But I think the film does handle it, whether it handles it with a level of like nuance and care, like, I don't really think mission impossible handles anything with nuance and care. So I don't think that I'd go that far, but it is very relevant. And I think that, you know, by, you know, by some measure, it certainly is a, is a timely topic. And I do think it's important. Like, I don't think mission impossible is the movie we should like, that should be like the, you know, the, the linchpin of the, of the cultural conversation around, you know, AI in the film industry but it certainly has captured something that I think is an important conversation. I think this is a part just like if we're just speaking narratively here, I think like having AI as your villain in a film is like, is really hard to pull off because, and and this is something that, that Jay was talking about when we were leaving the film or the day after the film and he was sort of reflecting on it. And I agree with him. It's not like, the, the truth is, is that, like, the AI should, like, pro- should win, right? Like, the AI should be able to predict yeah. all these things. Like, there's no real reason why any of this, like, the AI is, like, allowing any of this. Like, the AI should have known that Tom Cruise was going to pick Gabriel's pocket and, like, get the key. And, like, Gabriel should have known that. Also, the weird, like, hyperbaric chamber that Paris pulls him out of on the train with, like, the entity mask that he takes off, like what was that <laughs> like that was some scary stuff do you remember what do you remember what i'm talking about yeah yeah wild stuff i feel like we have not talked about that like we should have because that was some pretty crazy stuff um i feel like he was like jacked into the matrix there for a set like it was just, like wild, <laughs> wild stuff um but I, I think that like the truth is that like the ai should like should and like could have and should have won and so when you start to get about thing, like start playing, like, you know, even being rain, like Luther is like, you're playing 4d chess with an a, like, like there's like a point in this, in the movie where he's like saying that to him. I'm like, man, that that's like a problem with like AI as your villain. Like you sort of like, but what about this? But he'll know this. And what about this and this and this? And like, I think it just gets very confusing. And I think to like, actually make the movie work, you just have to like, stop thinking about it. And you just have to accept that. Like, the AI is not all powerful and all knowing like they say it is because if it, if it was then like Tom can't, can't kill it. You know what I mean? Like it, we're done. Like the type of, yeah, the I type mean, of computing that we're talking about, you know, it just, it's, it's kind of, it's over.
0: Taking all of the topical stuff out of it. Like, I just think, I do think kind of uh, along with what you're saying, like this is kind of where the franchise had to go in a way. Like, how do you keep outdoing yourself again? Like we're talking about, how do you keep doing something different? How do you keep coming up with missions that seem impossible? Right. Because the more impossible it gets and our heroes win. Right. It's like, how how do you, how do you have that tension throughout the movie of, Oh, well, are they going to get away with it or are they not? Right. Like, how are we not just going in and thinking, well, they, they did it last time, so they'll probably do it again. I mean, and... like,
1: it's not like Rogue Nation raises the stakes versus Ghost Protocol. It's not like each movie raises, like, continuously
0: raises the stakes. Maybe not in, in terms of the villain or anything like that, but in, in yeah. other ways, again, with the action. and No, and no, no, no. Yes, like I'm yeah. just talking about the villain and, like,
1: yeah, yeah. how impossible the mission seems.
0: Sure. Mission I, I- just mean they're doing that in... In this movie, they're they're extending that to the, the yeah, villain. that's true. Um, and we have to go somewhere bigger after, you know, that we had the multi-movie arc with Rogue Nation and, and Fall. And you're
1: getting the multi-movie um, arc with Dead Reckoning, I guess.
0: Yeah, and I feel like this was just the natural evolution of that. So, um, yeah, I thought it, it worked in that regard, and... You know, I didn't think too hard about it because, like you're saying, I don't. We it doesn't hold up. It just the the problem is that it just doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Yeah,
1: Um, which is not something that I. You know, maybe this is just me being dumb, but like, I I feel like the other plots of the Mission Impossible movies, like, they're not so like intricately woven that they like they're they're basic, like, X Y Z person wants A B C thing. And they're going to do something bad with it is like very simplistic in terms of narrative structure. And this is different. Like this is like all powerful AI machine is telling henchmen to go get XYZ thing and prevent ABC person from doing, you know, DEF action. Like it's, it's like, there's just like a lot going on there. And like, you can't really think about it for it to work. And I think, I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem with the movie. Like I do think for what, like stakes wise i i i agree with you and hear where you're coming from but i think the problem is it's just sort of like a problem with with the whole premise of having ai as a villain
0: yeah i i I hear you um at the end of the day it's it's a mission impossible movie i i don't i barely think about the movie having ai as a villain and more just like i i don't know I, I, it's hard to describe what i'm saying but i don't think about the political implications obviously of what ai means now i think about it as like this sci-fi thing that exists in this movie but like I, I don't know separate from our reality even though it's not separate from our reality anymore
1: yeah i think it's kind of both things right like i mean i actually think thematically in our reality it makes a lot of sense um you know for the all the reasons that i just talked about but it, it's more like in the context of the movie like if this AI is, is what everyone describes it to be, like, what is, what is, like, what are we even doing? Like, it's over already. That's my mind, at least. Like, there's just no, like, it is truly an impossible mission. And I know that's, like, the name of the movie, but I haven't ever really felt that way in other films before. And I think that's, what, that's the rub that I was sort of talking about with landing at the exact right spot on the train after the base jump. It's sort of, like, you know, a sort of, like, mentally exhausted by thinking about the algorithm and i was just like, I, like wow how lucky was this
0: <laughs> yeah uh it they it, it really is kind of crazy to think about how they looked into uh looked into this coming out at, at this particular particular time it's almost like a station 11 you know coming out right sure. after we've had the <laughs> the covid pandemic or whatever like you couldn't you couldn't script it any better When the movie would have yep. been awesome you know either way but uh just it does add a little It is adds it's a little so relevant that it's so yeah.
1: relevant right now feels
0: it adds something to the mystique of like oh tom cruise you know saving cinema like literally this is the biggest one of the biggest threats to movies right now is the growth of ai and he's attacking it head on
1: yeah tom uh, probably not a fan of fall last year
0: but I guess, you know, he could see the writing on the wall is is what we're saying from years ago somehow. But when they started making this movie, sure it works yeah. uh, more or less. All right, Scott, let's move into wrap up your favorite scene or moment from Dead Reckoning Part One. Yeah, I thought
1: a lot about this, and I think it, it does have to be, um, I think it has to be the end of the movie. I think that it does sort of sum up a lot of the things that, are just so great and this notion of after landing on on the train fighting on top of it a big callback to the first Mission Impossible movie where he's fighting uh, Phelps which is John Voight's character on the front of this like bullet train or whatever and yeah. you know he's fighting Isai Morales on the top of the on the top of the train they're in the tunnel or whatever uh, no helicopter behind the train this time unfortunately but Uh, yeah it has it has that and then then the train the sequence the Uncharted two like sequence as familiar as that was like it's almost like it's not a farce that's not the right way to describe it but like so much of the comedy of the film is just so like we're going to make this joke and we're going to keep making it and keep making it and keep making it and that's kind of how it felt too at the end of the film with like they're going to get through this car and then they got to do it again and then they got to do it again and isn't this funny they're going to do it one more time And I think that as silly as that maybe sounds when I say it like that, I think that it's really effective. And um, it sort of highlights the physicality of the performance, because I think obviously there's so much physicality in the performance from Cruz. But I think you get Cruz, you get uh, Haley Atwell, and you get Palm Clemente fall at the end of the film there. And, you know, I think it really works. And the set pieces are really cool. Um, More magic, I guess, in Dead Reckoning Part 2.
0: You know that scene right there Scott that is what I wanted from that stupid movie Bullet Train last year. I wanted that like concept of them go you know going through the cars or whatever and uh you they know They do
1: that in Bullet the, Train. Uh, Not like that, but they do go through the cars. Yeah.
0: Well sure, but you you know what I mean? I wanted more of like a Snowpiercer type setup of like oh, now we're in the dining car. I'm so sorry
1: that you walk Snow into train. Bullet Train wanting Snowpiercer. I'm so sorry for you.
0: Uh, okay. Again, we're not going to rehash this, but you know, you understand what I mean. I wanted the concept of Snowpiercer. Obviously, I didn't expect Bong Joon, a Bong Jun Ho level movie from David uh-huh. Leach. Um, <laughs> we do expect anyway. better from David Leach, though. Anyway, that movie sucked. Um, my favorite scene or moment, Scott, um, I will just mention a small moment because, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot sure. of big ones at the end of the car chase. This actually probably is the funniest thing, maybe even funnier than him crashing through the window like that. I think but, so.
1: I think the same thing to talk um, about
0: is definitely funny. After the the car chases ended, you know the little uh, what is it? What's the model of car? Fiat. We it's a Fiat. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Is like destroyed. Um, and Tom Cruise is trying to to get away from everyone that's chasing him, and the police roll up, and he is like he turns to like try and get away, and he realizes, looks down and realizes he's still that he is holding just the steering wheel from the car that you know has been separated from the vehicle obviously yeah because it was
1: hit by a by a by a subway train (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) yeah incredible sight gag just him like looking at the sign during realizing it like trying to figure out exactly what he's going to do without like you know again just just a sight gag he like he's not saying any words or anything um but yeah uh it, it was it was brilliant again another moment of the comedy that we're talking about in the movie that's it's it's subtle like it's not overdoing it like so many movies do nowadays
1: it has um, a lot of comedy though it, does, it does not. the comedy itself is not subtle because it is throughout the film but it's not a complaint
0: but it's not jokey jokey comedy like it is
1: well it's not I have to I have to do a quip right now like I have to I can't it's situational
0: I can't. and it's like Again, it gets some of that campy irony music, like yeah. People taking things so seriously that it becomes funny, right? What's well, like, the whole Simon hit- I mean
1: that's like Simon Pegg's entire character. He's just like also, we didn't talk about this. What is he like what is he doing putting the car into autopilot mode? The entity should have killed him just right there. Entity just takes over the car, murders Simon Pegg. What are we doing? What are we doing, Benji? What are you thinking, bud? Um, but even that where he's just like I am under a lot of stress right now. And he's like yelling
0: at Cruz or whatever, when he's about to like jump off the cliff. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's, that's funny. funny. That's funny. Um, I mean, but like Henry Cherney, for example, somebody again, who was just leaning so far in that it becomes. Yeah. Comedic. Yeah. I, we
1: didn't talk about Kitt- Kittridge at all. Really? I mean, um, but it, it was, was fun, fun to have, have him back. back. Had a lot of those like, uh, <laughs> jinx. Yeah. Had a lot of those, uh, paranoia or not, sorry, not paranoia. That's not the right word. Had a lot of those, um. You know, close-up shots, looking up into his face, a la Mission Impossible One. Uh, frankly, they did a lot of those shots in general in the film, a lot more than they had in the past. So, uh, what is that called? A Dutch angle? I don't. I'm not. I'm not caught up in my cinematography terms.
0: Dutch angle is like the like kind of crooked diagonal shot.
1: Yeah, but I was saying that's like that's like Kittridge's shot is like the Dutch. Angle oh yeah, from Mission Yeah, Impossible no, it 1. is. Like, and they do a lot of up, yeah. they do a lot of those in this movie, um, mm-hmm. with him and with other characters too. So that was cool.
0: Yeah. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. What do you give it and if you want to, where you know, where does it rank for you if you've even thought about that?
1: I have thought about it, Scott. I'm giving it an 8.5. For me, Fallout still reigns supreme. That is a masterpiece of a film. Number 1 for me has been since I saw it for the first time. And then I think I put this right below that with Rogue Nation. I think I need to think on it a little bit more. There's certain elo- I think I, I think I lean towards Rogue Nation being number two for now. But this is going to be I think I put this in third place. So above Ghost Protocol, below Rogue Nation.
0: Yeah, um, I am giving it a 9.0, Scott. Um, and I think I have arrived at this being my number three favorite movie uh, with Rogue Nation still being one, Fallout being two, and this being third just above. Mission Impossible 1. I, I prefer to think of it more in like the tiers, right? I think sure. I think the S tier is... Rogue Nation and Fallout. Those four movies that I just said. So oh, Rogue Nation. Okay. All four. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. R- Rogue Nation, <laughs> sure. Fallout, Dead Reckoning Part 1, and Mission Impossible 1. Then I think you have an A tier, that's Mission Impossible 3 and Ghost Protocol. Then I think you have a B tier. Only B, because I still like the movie. But I have you have a B tier that is yeah. impossible too.
1: I'd say it's a generous a generous B in my opinion, but
0: no, nah. it's like John Woo cook. Um, oh, all right, Scott, yeah. we're gonna take a a break and we're gonna come right back and talk about the big news that is happening in the movie world. We've kind of alluded to it a little bit here throughout this episode and talking about AI some, but uh, we now have the WGA and the Screen Actors Guild SAG on strike. Um, and it is it has uh, had big effects on the industry. We're going to be talking more about what's going on and what it means for the future when we come back. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, uh, we have we are back. And we're going to talk about the big news story um, that is going on in the world of movies and TV and everything in between really right now, which is the strikes. And the Writers Guild strike has been going on for quite some time now.
1: Yeah, um, over two months.
0: Yeah, we haven't really addressed it on the podcast, um, but we're addressing it now. and And now it is combined with... The Screen Actors Guild Awards. Uh, t- awards. The Screen Actors Guild. Uh, I'm just so used to saying that phrase because that's the only time I. Yeah,
1: specifically, specifically SAG-AFTRA and the yeah. the, they have multiple different agreements, um, contracts with the studios, like union contracts with the studios. This is specifically for the big stuff, right? All the scripted content, essentially film and TV, and anything related to that. It doesn't include. Like hosting or game shows. Like, there's like some carve-out that's not included in this, but like basically anything that you and I would really care about is included in this.
0: Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they're now standing together in solidarity, striking, uh, and demanding a fair wage from the studios, essentially. Um, and we've talked about a little bit earlier in this episode about how AI is kind of part of that and, you know, the increasing idea that these roles may eventually be replaced with artificial intelligence. I mean, you know, the, it, it's a slippery slope. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're certainly not there yet. But, you know, for example, Marvel just recently in their Secret Invasion show um, created an opening, cre- their opening credit sequence for Secret Invasion it re- uses AI. So we see it already being used in, you know. and We saw AI used a- last
1: year in fall. Yeah. All, I was alluding to it just before, but mm-hmm. when they wanted to go back and edit the film to be PG thirteen, so they get a PG thirteen rating and remove certain language from the film, they used AI to essentially auto generate um a, like dubbing and re and like reshooting a scene from that where an F bomb is used. So like we're seeing it in movies already
0: yeah um but i mean you know again using it in a marvel feels like a whole new level right i mean that's a sure. 200 million dollar show that um yeah know, it is it sure somehow is. it is but yeah. um they're they're using ai to put together um their credits but um that's part of it and and you know just in general the the feeling that they're not um making what they're worth perhaps and this is you know this it has already had big effects for the industry and Depending on how long it goes on, you know the future, um, you know, could be grim. I mean, thinking about the writer strike, there haven't been any late night talk shows, and you know, yeah. two, three months now since it started.
1: No late night, no any SNL
0: episodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, actors striking, you know, that puts pretty much everything in jeopardy because pretty much everyone, yeah, because un- unlike with the
1: writer strike, like everything in production right now is pretty much dead. Yeah. Unlike with the writer strike where you can, and you've seen this in the last few months, like you can shoot film and TV without writers. Some productions did shut down because they found their writers to be such an integral part, but even something like I think Deadpool three was still shooting. Like there's some very high profile projects that you would think that writing is constantly being done on the project, especially when you think about a movie like Deadpool, which is very humorous. They're probably trading in and out jokes and things like that. But um You know, it was still able to film. So there's still a lot of production that was happening. But, you know, as of this week, you know, as of Friday, when the strike began, began Thursday night. You know, I'm not sure there was a single production. Making now, there will be some productions, like some truly independent productions will continue to film. If you are completely independent from a studio, they will get a waiver. uh, An interim agreement is what it's called from SAG the SAG leadership to continue to shoot. So there'll be some production still, but to the point you're getting at Scott, you know, depending on how long this goes on for. And I think people are saying September, October is like a realistic timeline for how long the strike will last. You know, you're looking at probably significant disruption in the 2024 movie schedule. If we're just talking about what's relevant to this podcast and, you know, I don't know what that looks like in terms of, Obviously, there's the big stuff like your Marvel movies, like your Deadpool threes, which I can't I don't I think it's slated for next year. I don't even really remember. Um, But stuff like that's going to be really hard pressed to be completed just because of how long post-production takes on those films. So they can finish the filming. But what does that mean for post-production timeline hitting a summer release date? It means that it's probably not likely. And I think you're going to start to see that up and down the board, even with, you know, taking Marvel out of it with movies that we care more about right that are maybe shooting this year like i can't think of a good example off the top of my head but like you know steven spielberg's next movie right like it was i don't even know if that was supposed to come out next year right but like the idea is that like you're going to see major films impacted by the combination of the writers and the actors striking at the same time
0: yeah um it it is ground not to be glib about it but uh you know i think the writer the ai could probably put together a a deadpool movie that makes sense um but um, it's
1: it's so funny how jaded you are about that because you really liked that i know i i did
0: at the the time but that was before the market was saturated um sure sure. but anyway uh yeah no scott right it's it's gonna start affecting everything I, i guess My question for you, even the fall
1: festival season, like it's unclear exactly to the extent the fall festival season will even happen because because as a part of the strike and, you know, for people who are maybe not as familiar with the industry, this isn't automatic. But like you cannot promote your movies when you're on strike. The Screen Actors Guild does not allow their their constituents, their union members to, for example, promote Oppenheimer. So at the Oppenheimer premiere in I think it was the one in Paris last week. It was either the one in London or in Paris. I can't remember which premiere it was. But they walked out like after the red carpet, like a little bit into the movie or something like that because the strike had technically begun. So you know, the extent that that's going to impact Venice and TIFF, which are more like sort of star-studded festivals, the New York Film Festival also still usually has a lot of talent, but the the environment of the New York Film Festival is a little bit different. It's a lot more you know, it's 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 just a little bit different space than like your Venice or your Tiff. Um, so I, I think it, it, it's, you know, it's really concerning for the season and like will studios start to push their movies and, you know, rather than having three movies from, I don't know, searchlight pictures come out this fall. Do they hold your ghost Lanthimos's next film and wait for it for next year? Like, do you start do they start picking and choosing movies and moving them around? This again, this isn't as relevant, but like just I I believe over the weekend there was conversations within Warner Brothers or whether they delay Blue Beetle a full year because of the strike. The horror. I know like that's not a good example for this podcast, but like that's yeah. a big deal. Like that movie it has sure, been marketed yeah. significantly for months and because of the strike and because they're not going to they wouldn't have the talent to promote the movie. They're like, maybe we should just delay it a year. I don't think that their talent's going to make any difference <laughs> promoting that movie. I could be wrong. I don't think that's a good example. But it does make things interesting for something, you know, your bigger projects like your Killers of the Flower Moon, for example. Like Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, people who you probably want promoting the movie when it's released. Big, big names. They can't promote the movie when it comes out. And that's like a, that's like a big deal for Paramount and Apple to like not have them promoting it. Um, because they're really relying on the star power of that, and you know Martin Scorsese is different because he's a, he's the director of the film, and the directors did sign a new deal with AMPTP, which is the studio's um union bargaining body. But he also, I don't know, I don't Scorsese doesn't write though, right? He doesn't he doesn't write any of his movies, does he? He's not on WGA, is he? No, I don't think so. So it's like it's interesting because like you're gonna have like you potentially have Scorsese if he cooperates and doesn't choose to be in solidarity with the actors and the writers. But on the other hand, like you don't have Leo or Robert De Niro who are like your big faces. Like I know Jesse Plummens is in the movie too. I know Lily Gladstone is getting a lot of awards buzz, but like Leo and, and De Niro are the people you want running the movie. So it's just like tough conversations. I think it's just like tough decisions. Like if you have three or four big fall movies, if you're a studio, do you hold a couple of them? Also, what does it mean for award shows? Like right now it's the Emmys is most relevant, but like the Emmys is supposed to, is basically going to be in January now. Like, their September timeframe, which is when their award show typically is, like, not a single actor can be at that award show under the union contract guidelines. So that means that the Emmys just aren't happening. Emmy nominations were released last week, but the Emmys are not happening probably for six or seven, for like six months. So it's like, kind of just like this sort of really weird state of the of the industry that, like, not a lot of people are going to care that the Emmys aren't happening, obviously, but like, does matter for us, because we're interested in that kind of stuff. does matter for the podcast. And especially as it maybe affects, like, you know, you know, your film awards season as that comes up. Not just in terms of whether the awards season can happen, but if the films come out, I think it's interesting.
0: I guess my question for you, Scott, because you're, you know, more about the business stuff than I do. What will it take for the studios you think to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to meet the demands in some way.
1: It's hard to say. I mean, compromise. I mean, you know, Within any negotiation, there is compromise. Sure, I think like it seems like some of the big friction points for the actors. I mean, the the writers and actors they ultimately have different desires. Some of the themes are similar, like AI is is a common theme between the two. But the but the two bodies have different desires around AI, right? Like the writers are much more keen on having AI sort of completely stricken from the process, whereas the actors just want more cre- like just want more control over what their likenesses like how their likenesses can be used essentially. So it's the different demands around the common themes um, create different issues. But I think generally speaking, I think it's, I think it's like fairly clear that the studios are willing to meet the basic, like the base level salary demands because they did it with the DGA. Like they, they, they pretty much level set Mm -hmm. the play, like met the demands or compromised with the DGA on like what were, you know, reasonable demands, I guess, is what the studios would say. Um, you know, the actors want more. Uh, I don't know. I don't really remember the details of the WGA. Like the actors are going to have to probably come down from that. They want like a 11% pay increase in year one, which is supposed to meet the meet in like the demands of inflation over the two years where there wasn't that sort of significant pay bump up they're not going to get 11%. Like they're going to, they're going to have to compromise on that. There's like no way that the, that the deal is yeah. going to be 11%. That's crazy. Like I didn't get an 11% pay bump last year. Like that's just like, that's not happening. Like Unfortunately, it's just not happening. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. Like I wish it did. I wish it were that way, but it doesn't seem realistic. To
0: taking like the moral question out of it. Yeah. It's yeah. Just yeah, yeah. Practically it's like, it's not going to happen.
1: Yeah. Just practically that's not going to happen. So they're going to, so like there's going to be some compromise that comes around on that. When it comes to, when it comes to like other elements of the financial component, like a big thing for the actors is streaming residuals. This is a super complicated topic that there's like really no point in diving deep into. Um, but basically it comes down to like the Netflix model of paying actors was like, you know what, we're gonna pay you your your salary plus 20% and not pay you what's called like the back end of your deal. So in a typical deal, like Universal would pay an actor. Their base salary, we're gonna call it five million dollars, but you're gonna get it, like you're gonna have success metrics for the film. Like if your film makes a billion dollars at the box office, you're gonna get like a percent of gross revenue, or or like Tom Cruise's like deal for Maverick was like he gets like a couple percent of gross revenue on the movie or something like that, right? Like they're performance based metrics. Netflix just dis- like a part of the how they disrupted the industry and and acquired. You know, A-list talent to be in their in their shows and movies is that they basically quote unquote bought out the back end of a lot of these deals, and so they paid a lot more in salary, but there was no back end component, performance based component for the films. But now that the industry has been so disrupted by that, and so much of the industry has shifted towards streaming, the actors want a cut of that, and so one of the one of the big holdups in on their side with the studios is that they demanded basically 2% of revenue from subscribers based on third-party data sources. Don't need to get into the details of the third-party data sources. They would happily swap that for internal data with the studios. But the business line from the studio side is that we are absolutely not going to share our data with you, and you absolutely cannot use third-party data metrics to, to measure the success of your movie on our platform. So there's a big... Non starter. I think that's actually maybe even the biggest sticking point in the deal, like that and AI, which I can talk about in a second, is probably the biggest thing. Like the fact that actors want a percent of subscriber revenue from streaming services. Like, I don't see a world in which they get a single penny. Like, I just can't see the studios giving a single penny of subscriber based revenue. And it's like a really complicated thing, right? Because I kind of get it, right? Like, you want this performance based component, like, you want the actors and any creative talent to be incentivized to make a good product right like beyond just the fact that like the, the, the like they want their art to be good like you want the you want them to have skin in the game it's like kind of how it works like it make it makes sense that you would want that but at the same time you know these actors were happy to work with Netflix for a decade and take 20% higher pay and you know shook hands with the devil and said i don't need a back end for this but now they want both the 20% higher upfront pay and the back end and i I think that I I get it and I, I, I know why they want that, but like, I just think that it's probably a non-starter with A and PTP. I, I just don't see that happening. And then the last part is the, is the AI component, which we obviously alluded to earlier. I think here they probably have a stronger position than that makes more sense to me than where the studios are at. Although like, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and say I have a full understanding Of the studios position but like based on what I've read like the studios proposal for AI restrictions was you know they will it was pretty soft but like they'll pay you for days for like a day rate they'll scan you and then if you believe the the negotiators from SAG-AFTRA that they're they're fairly representing what the studios um, had submitted in their proposal which again, like they're only one side of the equation that basically the studios claim that they should have full and unfettered rights to do whatever they want with that actor's uh, representation in terms of AI usage and implementation. I think that like that position probably has to change for there uh, to be a deal that's signed. I I think that like that is something that should be able to be compromised on. Like really what the, it sounds like what the actors really want is like, you can like we'll let you scan like and do that. But like you, we have we have to be consulted like the actor has to be able to give like n- knowing consent and approval for whatever their representation is done in a film. Like if if they scan Brad Pitt and they're going to put Brad Pitt in Killers of the Flower Moon in the post credit scene like Brad Pitt has to completely and 100 percent sign off on that. And like that makes sense to me. Like that makes sense to me as a demand. Um, I know why the studios would want to have more power and control over that. Cause I like, you know, like any asset, you want control over what of the things that, that you have. But same
0: reason that Gabriel wants control of, uh, of sure, the internet. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I just think that it's that's one of those things where like it's hard to see like how a deal would get done with the actors without the studios budging on that some. That's just my perspective. Like that's not based on anything. I don't even have like taking the morality and the opinion out. Like I'm not even giving an opinion on whether I think like what's fair and what's not fair. It's just like, I don't really see the actors signing an agreement that doesn't have more, you know, knowing consent involved with the reproduction of their, you know, their voice and their body um, in movies that they don't actually, you know, quote unquote perform in. So I think that, that is a very simplified version of some of the issues. Don't get me wrong. Um, it's much more nuanced and complicated than that. But I think that, you know, this is a big enough deal. And there's like some other nuances that like some people would say, like the studios don't really mind having a strike right now because it helps them balance their, um, their P and L's and their balance sheet and their books a little bit easier Um, in a time where a lot of companies are suffering significant losses in some of their business units, you know, I don't have an opinion on whether that's true or not. Like, I think the truth is that like, we would all be better off if like productions were not halted. Like, yes, maybe the studios are saving a few million dollars here and there, but that money's going to get spent whether it's now or whether it's next year. Like, you know, the productions are the same. So, you know, whether you finish, you complete Deadpool three in 2022, or sorry, in 2023 or 2024, like you're still paying the production for Deadpool 3. So I I don't know if, if I really have a strong opinion about that either way, but that's something that some commentators have said that the studios don't really mind it too much. And, and there may be some merit to that, but I think that all else equal, I think everyone would like to be working. And I think that, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes.
0: There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, straight from the mouth of... One of the foremost voices in the movie business oh, right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, ne- if
1: only I were in the room where it happens.
0: Who needs the Snyder cut? Which doesn't exist anymore, but who needs the Snyder well, it cut? Still does for I, I now. Mean,
1: it's still it's still up for now, right?
0: No, I, I don't like... mean the film, the Snyder cut. I mean, Jeff Snyder's podcast, the Snyder cut. And oh, you heard, can yeah. listen to Scott sure. Shelton talk about the movie industry instead. Sure. Um, yeah, I'll probably cut all this out so I don't get fired, so... But also, uh, yeah, we don't actually need the Snyder Cut, the movie either, and and thankfully, some people are finally realizing that it seems. Well, it
1: does. It does seem like Warner Brothers is thinking about taking that off of HBO Max, which is really funny. It'd be even funnier if it ended up on like Tubi.
0: Yeah. Well, on that note, Scott, I think we can uh, we can wrap up. Go to the ad yeah. break. Um, Go to the ad break. <laughs> throw throw in uh, throw in our ad ad drop here. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. I'll mark it. I'll it Ad read um all this right scott. Well, that is sponsored we'll
1: actually... by barbenheimer
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll actually do it for this episode of something like it scott uh, we hope you've enjoyed the this episode if you have and you'd like to support us don't forget about our patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods scott where can our listeners find you on social media I meant to ask you that at shelton 2013 and I am at Dent on all platforms. I mentioned our Patreon. Even if you can't subscribe over there on our Patreon, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app, and we hope you'll be back for next week. The biggest episode ever, Scott? Maybe? Maybe. Uh, Yeah, it could be. It's finally here, uh, the cultural event of the century, uh, Barbenheimer Weekend. Uh, And we will have reviews of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.